isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name, my name is. Does <laughs> my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. All right, everybody, welcome to the Roundup. It's Cody here. Um, unfortunately, maybe fortunately, if there's anybody out there that likes me better than Robbie, unfortunately, Robbie's not with us tonight. He is out filming an episode on location um, in somewhere in West Texas and does not have good internet signal was totally planning on joining us, but it's not working out. Um, so I am joined. I think, I think it'd just be better. I think we'll be all around better without Robbie and maybe the fans will let <laughs> us know that we should continue that way. We do have an incredible guest, um, Sue Tidwell. Um, let me hit a couple of admin points and then we want to dive into some stuff about what Sue's going on, has going on before we get into the uh, the actual roundup part of the topics discussion. Um, the normal stuff on the admin side, for those of you that have listened before, um, hit our shop. We've got some cool stuff in the shop. Our supporters program, um, our supporters program, the minimum donation, monthly donation is $3 a month. Um, and you get entered to uh, win some pretty incredible sweepstakes stuff there every month. Our sponsors um, and our corporate partners for our supporters program are incredible. Um, I think we average somewhere around 10 different gifts a month. Um, and we gave away a chamois hunt in uh, Spain last month. So some of them are pretty incredible hunts. Um, we do that supporters program, folks, because we kind of uh, we get offered – I've been with Blood Origins for um, going on about uh, 17 months now, and I can think of three or four times that, that some big name folks, some some big name corporations in the hunting community have reached out to us and want to give us a big chunk of money, um, it, it, a big chunk of money in our in our little nonprofit world, 
um, to promote their stuff. And we just have always felt that if we latch onto a brand and promote it, um, that it's going to dilute our reputation. It's going to dilute the fact that we're trying to do this for all hunters um, across every spectrum of, of hunting. Um, and so we've chosen to get the vast majority of our funding from our supporters program, three or five or $10 a month from each person. So if you have a chance, go check that out. We think it's worthwhile. And quite honestly, it's the only thing that keeps us in business. If you're a corporation and want to give us a hand, we do have our corporate conservation club, um, which, uh, I don't believe we've announced yet, but we got our first thousand dollar a month, um, partner in the corporate conservation club, which um, the things that we're going to be able to do with that money, are going to be incredible for all of us. Last on the admin note, we've been trying to push this, this uh, user interaction thing. It's going great. Um, people are doing it. Um, and Tim, who we had on, Tim was one of our, uh, Tim from Canada was one of our uh, uh, listener guests. We reached out to the community across our podcast and said, Hey, we want to have everybody on this roundup all the way from world famous authors like Sue to Tim from <laughs> Tim from Canada. Um, and Tim sent us this text today. He said, Hey fellas, Tim here just heard the roundup with jewels and the discussion of CWD Manitoba has just declared its first cases and have shut down the season for the time being in the affected area. I can talk quite about that, about that, but, Excuse me. I can talk quite a bit about that subject in my own province. First of all, Tim, thanks for listening um, to that uh, roundup from last week with Jules. It was pretty incredible. Um, and no doubt, folks, if uh, if ungulate hunting, deer hunting, elk hunting is is a part of your life, um, it's probably time to start paying attention to CWD. I don't want to. I don't want to drop off into any of the drastic arguments that are being had about different aspects and avenues and, and, and things that need to be done or should be done. Um, and it sucks that the Manitoba season got shut down because of some CWD cases. I don't quite understand the biology behind ending the deer season, but, uh, thanks for the reach out, Tim. We'll, I'll reach back out to you. I promise I have your contact info and we may get together and discuss that more, but uh, no doubt CWD is a thing, um, a thing we probably need to be paying attention to, a thing we need to be listening to the biologists, um, and a thing that we need to make sure that we're being careful about, I think, in the sense of how little we understand its reach and its uh, effects right now. So I try to fly through the admin stuff because it needs to be done, but I'm not that big of a fan. So Sue. Um, yeah. You have been a uh, interactor with Blood Origins for some time. Fair statement. Yes, we, ever the, since I found you guys. <laughs> um, you live in rural Idaho, correct? correct. Um, Non-hunter, correct? Non-hunter. Um, but you went to Africa. I did. I, my, my husband is a hunter. I did grow up in a hunting family. So, um, I understand hunting, but I was never a hunter myself. Um, but I did go to Africa with my husband and I wasn't, um, I'm like a lot of Americans who, um, 
we kind of tend to lump African animals in a whole different category. And when it comes to hunting them, we, we just don't get it. So anyway, um, I went to Africa with my husband, but not totally on board with it. And, um, it was very remote, very in the wilderness. But anyway, I, uh, after spending my time there, I, I now I'm passionate supporter of hunting. So, um, I totally changed my whole viewpoint after having boots on the ground. You you said the words I I, I'm, I don't I'm I forgot the quote, but I'm going to paraphrase. You basically said I don't hunt, but I understand hunting. What is what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I understand the whole um, because I grew up in a hunting family and surrounded by hunters in a deer hunting community. I don't look at hunters like these evil, vile people, like, like people that don't know hunters do. So I, I know them to be good, hardworking um, people with family values and a, a community system, support system that's, I mean, I, I could go on and on about how my brothers growing up with the support system that they've given to each other. So I, I was able to see hunting from that standpoint and I we ate meat growing up that's all we had was you know deer meat that's was part of you know that's was our main staple so I just never myself by the time I saw the animals they were carcasses hanging in the garage so right. it, I wasn't there for the kill I never went along for the hunt until I met my husband and um that was actually tra quite traumatic the first time but um I found myself learning. It's kind of funny. I I understood hunting, but I didn't understand hunting. I mean, I could never understand why they wanted to sit in the tree at four in the morning in the dark and in the rain. And I mean, I just thought they were silly. <laughs> but right. after I started going with my husband, I got it. I, I got the appeal of um, being in the wilderness and seeing these animals and ch challenging. Because even though I wasn't hunting, I was still challenging myself just to keep up with my husband for one thing. So, um, I guess you could say that that's why when I went to Africa, I kind of went with a, even though I was against them hunting that those animals, I was a little bit more open-minded than maybe somebody else might be. It, it allowed me to look at the bigger picture and learn from the people when I was there. Why were you, well, I, okay. I got two things. One is, would it be fair to say that part of that understanding is at least under, even if you didn't understand motivations, you understood, you knew people, you knew they weren't just like bloodthirsty killers. You, 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 I don't know if, I, if, if you're saying you understood their motivation, but you did understand that they weren't bad people. Does that, is that fair? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't totally get the drive to you know, spend hours and hours in the field and get up at ungodly hours when it's zero degrees out. I, I didn't understand that drive and that passion, but I did know them to be good people. I mean, moral, hardworking people who supported each other and were always there for each other. And, you know, um, if somebody needed something, they were there to help. I mean, I, I knew the whole, the, the whole picture of it. You know, I knew they weren't horrible people. I just spent five days walking around in the mountains of Idaho 
failing miserably to find a mule deer. And I'm not sure I understand my motivation to do about the fourth day. I questioned my motivation on what I was doing. Um, not really. I had, I had a blast, but, um, yeah, that part of it's difficult. You know, it's, it's like, uh, anyone that wants to go out and do an uncomfortable thing that sometimes you wonder why, if that's you, that you want to do that. But, uh, you, you also said, again, I don't think I'm paraphrasing this. I mean, you, you said that even though I was against them killing the animals in Africa, um, why do you think we talk about this a fair amount on blood origins? Why is it that an animal that's 10,000 miles away is perceived so differently when you kill that animal than a white-tailed deer or a mule deer or an elk here in the United States? You know, I think we just have such a romanticized view of them. I mean, I, I loved African wildlife since, you know, since I was a kid. I mean, I was just infatuated ever, ever since. And I think it's because, you know, we always see, you know, like tonight I was looking outside, there's 10 deer in my pasture. So deer are just common. We see them all the time and elk, I mean, you have to work a lot harder to see them, but they're there and bears too. And I mean, we're, we're more used to that wildlife here, but those just seem so exotic and they're, and they are, I mean, I still am captivated every time I see them, but, um, I came to understand when I was over there that we, we can't base it on emotion just because I'm more emotionally attached to those animals because they are what I consider exotic, but we have to base it on, you know, on science and what works overall to protect the, um, species. What, uh, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag that I've read about the first. I really don't know on my computer. I don't see page numbers. I think I've hit the next page button about a hundred times. Um, <laughs> so I'm about that far into a digital copy of your book. Um, wh when did you go like this? It couldn't have been, I mean, you had to write a book, so it's been a, a while since you went. It's been a, it's been a process. I, I actually went in 2015. But then the first two, you know, and I made a promise to Lillian, who it's our, you know, and at the time I didn't even realize how amazing this was, but um, we had a female um, game scout, which is, you know, pretty, you know, we take th things like that for granted here. But um, right. I didn't, until somebody mentioned it to me, how unusual that was, it never had even occurred to me. So anyway, um, out of the, we were in a remote camp in remote Tanzania and um, 21 people there and Lillian was um, the only female as far as the staff went. She wasn't even the staff, she was an actual game scout. And she luckily was assigned to Rick and I, and because um, in Tanzania, game scout goes with you everywhere and makes documents everything, make sure everything's done legally. Well, Lillian was a 23 year old, beautiful girl who very intelligent, could speak pretty good English, spoke Swahili, spoke her native language. Um, and we just hit it off because she was kind of, um, you know, feeling, she didn't know any, the Tanzania game scouts don't, they don't work for the outfitter. So she had kind of got thrown into this encampment and didn't know anybody there either. So um, anyway, we just hit it off. And when the guys were doing something or busy with something, we, I would just bombard her with questions and she just helped me understand everything. And, and I was just 
fascinated with everything I learned, you know, but uh, I don't even know what answered your question you asked me. Sorry. Um, oh, you did. It was, yeah, 2000, 2017, oh, you said. So anyway, I come home. I made her a promise. That's it. I made her a promise when I left that I would try to help people understand because they were all worried about Americans don't understand and how important hunting is. So I told, I made her a promise that I would try to help. Well, I came home and I did. I tried to talk to people. I tried to, I did a few things. It, you know, I was just, you know, a friend here and a friend there. And it's it just, it wasn't enough. But I was working at the time. My husband and I were doing fixer uppers and I was, you know, you know, earning a living and, and doing that. So finally, when my husband um, took a job flying for Alaska Airlines, um, I couldn't, we couldn't, I couldn't do my job anymore because we were back and forth between Seattle and Idaho. And, and anyway, it kind of turned into the perfect opportunity to finally actually sit down and write the book. But it actually, it, it took me two years to write it and another year just to get it through the, all the processes of um, editing and formatting and just all the stuff that goes into self-publishing. So um, anyway, it's been a process. First First book. First book. I, I I will tell you that it. Uh, I'm no literary critic, um, but not only. I mean, first of all, first and foremost, you write a book about Africa that has anything to do with wildlife or hunting over there, and that's going to have my interest. The book is very well written. Like I, again, none of this matters because I don't know what I'm talking about. But if like. If I if the book starts to turn into a movie that I'm seeing in my head, then it's a good book to me, right? Like if my brain is making a movie happen inside, um, to me that's good writing. It, I, I do the same thing with songs. Like my favorite songs are old story songs, like the, you know, that they're, that they're telling something that happened. And if in my brain, if I'm seeing it happen, then I like that song, whether no, regardless of the subject. And I very much have this exact picture of the the first night in the tent with you and your and your husband and the noises that you're hearing. Um, like I'm I'm captivated by that because I'm seeing it happen in my mind because of the way that you wrote it. So regardless of subject matter, I do think that it's very well written. Um, I have hundreds of books that I made it to page nine on because they just didn't do that for me. Um, and I will put a book down. Um, and honestly, I don't like reading on my computer very much. I'd rather have a book in my hands, but I'm, I'm captivated by your book. The book is called Cries of the Savannah. I'm always interested in the titling of a book. Like what, and now I, I think I could guess why, or maybe something happens later in the book, why, but where did the title come from? Oh, titles are so important. I tell you, I struggled with this so much, but ultimately, Cries of the Savannah refers to a couple different things. First of all, I was captivated by the cries of the night. I mean, laying in that tent and hearing the hyenas and the lions and the elephants and the hippos. I mean, there was everything was just outside our tent. And hearing that at night, it was terrifying. But yet, you just, it was just captivating. I mean, I, I came, as scared as I was, I came to just love it. So, you know, to me, that's part of Africa is the cries of the savannah. And then in another sense, it refers to 
the cries of the savannah for the world to understand. It, it's, it's a cry for, for the animals to, how, how I want to put it, it's, how's it my last sentence go? Something as, not only the cries of the night, but the cries for the world to understand what it will take to um, save African wildlife. And, uh, you know, we can't protect the species over there with these idolized views. We have to face the reality of what's, what it's like with boots on the ground. So um, we have to do policies that help the local people and empower them and have their support and um, because they're the ones living with these animals that we love. So anyway, that's, that's kind of where the cries of the savannah, the cries from the night and the cries for the world to understand. What it, what it, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, as much as you, I don't think we're really, uh, I've never done an author interview and I've got this fear of like giving away too much, but I don't think that's a thing. What, what is that cry in your mind after having gone over there, um, done wild Africa, right? Like I've, I've, I've been to Africa a couple of times and hunted it once. Um, what is that cry? What's that message that you promised the game scout that you would get out? Just that, just that this, the sustainable use of resources is critical over there. I mean, um, you know, we tend to, in America, we accept it here. We accept that you have to have deer hunting to keep control and you have to have, you know, these seasons. We accept that here, but for some reason we don't, we have Africa in this other category, but we have to make, um, like Lillian, when I, the first time we came across some elephant bones and we got talking about poaching and I was shocked. I, there were so many types of poaching that I had no idea about. You know, we tend to think of rhino poaching, elephant poaching, and a few of those big kinds. I had no idea about bushmeat, bushmeat poaching and um, poaching for honey, cutting down 3,000 year old you know, baobab trees for the honey and, and all these other kinds of poaching. And, and just, I learned from Lillian that, you know, um, cause she knew I wasn't real on board with hunting some of this, like my, my husband was going to hunt zebra and I was not on board with zebra and, um, a couple of the other animals, but, um, she helped me understand that without a value, um, there's no reason for the locals to protect them. She, she gave me examples of, um, Lions, for instance, you know, people are so against lion hunting, but she explained to me that how the sacrifice of one lion, old lion at the end of his lifespan, who's already passed on his genes, that sacrifice ends up protecting habitat for all the other animals. And it gives the villagers a reason to try to live with these lions, because the truth is way more lions and leopards and those kind of animals die to poisoning than they ever do to, um, to the well-managed hunting and um so you know poison is the way to go to destroy in in my book i have a few pictures of, of that but um it was shared to me by a biologist but um you know and and the other thing um i'm lost my train of thought again sorry but that's um, all right but anyway it, it, just she explained to me the whole how important that is and then the habitat you know she explained to me how and and i learned that you know no one had to explain it to me after i was there for a week i mean you bounce around on those teetsy fly infested roads 
on potholes and it's 100 degrees and you're sweating but even though you're sweating you're like you're layered in clothing i mean lillian looked every day like she was going to you know the arctic she had hats on and scarf on because she was in that darn um in the front of the the land cruiser with those tc flies that wouldn't even escape anyway you're all in these clothing just to keep from tc flies and you bounce around on these roads and sure it's amazing but the animals run you're in an area where they're um it's not touristy so these animals they see you they run i mean i have so few pictures of actual animals of good pictures i mean I have blurry ones in the distance and animals their butts leaving and i have a lot of good pictures of the camp and the things like that things that are stationary but you just when you're in the wild like that it's not like a it's not like you see on TV. You're not driving there and the animals aren't just standing around waiting for you to take pictures. So once I started seeing all this, and it took us, it, we, we did charter plane, which was way out of our comfort zone, but it, it was a two and a half hour flight to where we went. If not, it would have been a 16 hour drive to get there. So that would have been another two hours each direction or two days each direction. So no normal tourist is going to go there. But we were in 560 square miles of territory that was protected because of hunting. If not, um, it would have been encroached on by, um, you know, by, uh, you know, crops and agriculture and pastures. And, 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 and Lillian, Lillian, Lillian also explained to me that um, we're like a buffer zone. The, the hunting things are like a buffer zone around the park. We bordered Ru Ruaha National Park. And right. the hunting concessions border that. So it is like a, it's, the poachers don't want to operate in hunting zones. So we were like this, it was just kind of like this um, thing that helped keep poachers away from that national park. Yeah, sometimes and to me. It, it also was an overflow for the animals if they got too populated in the park that they could explode, you know, expand over into the game reserve. Sure, it'd be maintained a little bit away from civilization. But Sometimes to me, it feels it's it's almost condescending um, that those folks over there have set up systems. They're working on systems to protect their wildlife with hunting as a part of that, which is exactly how we do it here in the United States. I mean, our wildlife is over over the last hundred years, the North American game model has been just as successful as anything in the world. Um, the, the thing that we hunt the most in the United States is white-tailed deer, and we have a population problem in most places with white-tailed deer because they've been given a value, um, and they've been protected with government regulations that's funded by hunting. It's almost condescending to me when they're trying to develop their own model of that, and so many people... Um, are against them on that. So many people are telling them they're doing the wrong thing. Um, and it, it, you know, it's truly amazing. There's a lot of places over there and the vast majority of the locations where those, where those charismatic meta, megafauna are flourishing um, and doing well and, and the habitat is doing well are places where hunting is, is part of the management plan and part of the revenue source. Um, I don't get it at all. I love the fact that you wrote a, a very, very interesting book to get that message out. Um, I think it's a powerful message coming from a non-hunter who went to Africa, 
you know, maybe not a hundred percent behind um, the intentions of the trip, and as far as your perceptions of of what it was going to be like over there. Um, but no, it's it's very interesting to me. The book is incredible. Um, what tell people how to find the book, find you, get behind you before we jump on to the topics of the roundup. Well, probably the best thing to do right now is follow me on Instagram, which is suetidwell.writer. Um, and I have an email uh, on my website is um, suetidwell.com. And you can sign up for my email list there. I'm, I'm hoping to release the book in about two weeks. Um, I'm as I am a first time author. So and I'm essentially a nobody in the hunting world. I'm just somebody with a unique um, perspective and with a really important story to tell. So trying to find an actual publisher who was interested in me, I just decided to go the self-publishing route. So um, I, um, but anyway, so if you go to, you'll hear about when it's available either on Instagram or my website, and hopefully uh, Blood Origins can make an announcement or something, but yeah, I'm yeah. a couple of weeks, <laughs> I'm hoping in a couple of weeks to have it ready. I, I just need, I finally got the formatting all done last night, finally. So I just need to pick a day and stick with it. I, I think I'm just procrastinating now because I'm a nervous wreck about it. But um, anyway, so. I saw kind of an unboxing on your Instagram today or an un <laughs> unwrapping. Did you get a, was that the final proof copy that you opened on your Instagram? It was the proof copies that you ordered just to kind of see everything prints out all right and everything. And we did find a few mistakes. So I'm trying to correct it, but. As you kind of saw on the video, it really, I thought I was all excited and really excited about opening this up after three years. And then it just, the emotion just, it just overtook me because it's been, sorry. Um, no, you're okay. I'm, I can't, been, I can't, long journey. It's been a long journey, journey and it's, and it's so important. Um, it's so important that we give the people of Africa a voice. And that's what right now no one is doing. Or I, I, no, I take that back. There's a lot of people doing it, but not enough. Not enough people. Um, there's the mainstream is not giving African people a voice. I mean, and we need to hear their voices. So anyway, that's my <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize for anything. That's perfect, and I I couldn't agree more. So much of it, um you know, the, the Lillians of the world are in, in, in my opinion, we're really, we're condescending to them. They're, they're, they're working a program um, the same way that every, every country that has successful wildlife management and population programs is working as, as hunting is a part of it. Um, and the way they're attacked is just, I mean, it's not even a civil debate or discussion where folks come in and want to learn you know no one's asking them why no one no one that's against them is asking them why they do this they're just just hateful to them about it um and you know i don't really um i don't have the same kind of thoughts i mean i I've been over, I've been over, I've, I've hunted Africa and I can handle it. People can be mad at me. Um, but the folks that are over there benefiting it, they can't lose it. Right. Like, 
Like it's so it's so first world condescending the way people treat the folks over there that are trying to make something work, not only financially for the people of Africa, but financially for the wildlife of Africa. Um, and like you said, can you imagine a group of tourists on a double double decker bus dealing with titi flies? It it it's not gonna happen. Eco eco ecotourism is not going to those parts of Africa. Um, I'm not saying that no non-hunter is tough enough to go over there, but people are not going to pay good money to go over there for a day's bus ride. It'll last four minutes with the tsetse flies and they'll all be asking for their money back and trying to run out of, of that part of Tanzania. It's not, it's not going to happen. And and it's a it's an ignorance that uh, gets really really nasty towards those people. And like I said, that the hunters um, that go over there, we can handle it. There's no pity party for me or your husband or even the dentist with the Cecil the lion thing. He'll be all, he'll be all right. But the people that are over there, um, you're destroying their livelihood in a country that can't support can't. In, in a place that doesn't need livelihoods destroyed. Um, and not only that, the damage being done to the animals, it's, I don't understand it. I say this all the time. I want to, I want to, I've attempted multiple times on social media to just be like with anti hunters, be like, will you, we won't even record it. Will you just get on and talk with me about this? Cause I can't understand your motivations for what you're doing to these people in the wildlife over there. But that, you know, that's what I'm hoping is to give, I mean, if you read the book, you're, you're going to meet Raphael and, and, um, Joel and Hillary and Mogo. And I mean, you're going to meet all these people that I fell in love with. I mean, cause you are, we worked, we were close with them that whole time, you know, and I just, I just fell in love with them. And, you know, when you get to know them, you know that it's their livelihoods. I mean, you know, when you have a face to it, when I think of a kid getting attacked by a lion, I can picture, you know, Gogo's kids or, you know, what's going to happen. How are they going to feed their families if they don't, if the hunting camp disappears? I mean, it's just, I, I try to, I try for people to get to help people to get to know them too, as we go, because I, I just want people to put a face to the names basically. They're yeah, putting, to me, they're know. like, uh, I'll probably piss somebody off. To me, they're like, uh, they're like country folks on a level that we don't even have around here, right? Like, to me, I've, I've, I've always loved living in, in a small town. I now live 25 miles from a town. Um, and people in these areas don't really, you know, if they come up and, talk to you there very seldom seems to be a ulterior motive right they're just who they are and i think that the the native people of africa are an exaggerated example like they just get up in the morning and survive right like there's not all that they're not they're not worried about they're not, they're not worried about what's coming out on TV. They're not worried about all these kind of frivolous things that are in our mind. Everything you're getting from them is so sincere. Um, and uh, I'm not saying the people of Africa. 
I'm saying people that live that kind of kind of lifestyle. I'm not saying it's just them, but there's just this real genuineness about them that I think uh, I correlate back to kind of country folks here in, in the United States that we that we you know we just kind of get up in the morning and do what we need to do and there's not much of an ulterior motive most of the time and I think that's exaggerated with them. Some of the most sincere people, um, and uh, like they're happy. You know, have you ever like, have you ever like been on a, you ever been on a, I've, I've been on vacations. I've been very fortunate to travel a lot of the world. And there's some places that I won't mention by name that you go and the people that are there, even the ones that are kind of like, you know, your waiter or the bartender or they, they seem disgruntled. And I hate that. I feel like it makes me feel like I'm part of a crappy situation, but they're they're so happy and it can't be fake because it's all the time right like they're just happy and they're living this life that i think a lot of us spoiled first worlders would not be happy living right i mean it's not a luxurious thing going on over there um and i just wish more people had that opportunity to see um the opportunities that the the potential that hunting has to to help those people continue to live their lives and be happy. I agree. I just think that, you know, there's, I, I just think they're amazing and we need to start taking their consideration into what, um, oh, sorry, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. So much of it is, I, so much of it I think is just trusting them, right? Like, yeah. why do we assume like you said it, you went over there and the government of Tanzania, the regulatory bodies put someone with that hunt to, to oversee it, right? Like they're doing, they're doing the right things. And yes, there's corruption in Africa, but at the same time, you know, we can make a, we, we could write a whole nother book about corruption in the United States too. We have corruption exactly. too, but that doesn't mean that, that their, that their corruption is any worse or, I mean, I, I, so much of it is trusting those folks with the things that they're doing as they try to figure it out um, and realizing that so many of them, even the outfitters or the professional hunters, the safari operators um, are genuine people. Like you said before, yeah, they're hunters, um, but, but the animals are near and dear to them and taking care of them. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, we, we go on about this a lot. Um, I would plead for someone out there um, to just – I want to get an ardent anti-hunter on the show um, with some folks like you. We we could put people from Africa on the show. Um, that conversation is – we've got – there's got to be a wall that we break through there because it's just so much of – you're right and I'm wrong and I'm right and you're wrong and nobody ever listens. And it doesn't feel like we, we make the kind of progress we have. We do. I do want to say this and I'm distracting myself from the thing that Robbie thinks I should be doing right now. We do have some, <laughs> we do have successes and it's a part of what makes blood origins great. And part of it is there's a lot of misinformation that good people then get in their head, right? I, like there, that's what I there are. I really believe that there's a lot of good intentions out there with the wrong information. 
Absolutely. No, no, you're spot on. The, the anti-hunting organizations have just used and abused this study that came out that said that the people of Africa end up receiving none of the benefits of the hunting operations over there. And I can literally, we can bring you, and I'm not talking about me as a American that went over there and hunted telling you, no, I promise they do see the benefit that we have video, we have interviews, we have on the ground stuff. It, it, it's a huge benefit to the local populations. Are there some operations that are greedy and don't help the locals? Probably. I don't know of any, but probably there are some. But the vast majority of those operations realize, even if it's from a business standpoint, if they don't support the community, the community won't support them and they won't have the animals that they need. And when you provide so much of that bush meat trade too, it's not bad people. So much of that bush meat trade is just people that They're need desperate. to eat. Yeah, they just need to eat. And that's what you know, they got to eat. Start putting, it's, it's crazy. It, when you, you got to, I, what I started doing and what I try to do even in the book is try to start putting people in their place. Like, what if you had three kids and you had no food? I mean, zero. And then you were having to go out and herd cattle and there's lions out there. I mean, you, you've got to start thinking like this, but probably any one of us would kill an animal illegally if it meant to keep our family alive. I mean, I, I, I know I would. <laughs> no, I absolutely. Too. Yeah. It wouldn't even, I mean, it wouldn't, if, if it meant keeping my family alive, it wouldn't even bother me. It, I mean, it wouldn't mm -hmm. be a thing that bothered me, but if someone came in and said, Hey, if you stop illegally killing these animals, we'll provide some jobs, some income, some subsidies. We'll, we'll, we'll give those animals an actual financial value to you to leave, excuse me, to leave them alive. And it happens every day in every country in Africa where hunting is happening. That situation happens. Um, anyway, let's move on. I'm going to get fired. Okay. Let's move on to the, to a couple of roundup topics here. So I can tell Robbie that we actually did a roundup and I we actually did something <laughs> get engrossed in my, this feels like a real author interview because I kind of have an early release. Like this is big time. This is big time media where the <laughs> author sends an early copy to the. This is big stuff. Um, you're, well, I'm supposed to let you. Pick. I'm supposed to let you pick. That's Robbie's thing. Did you go through the articles at all? Well, yes, I went through every one of them. I even have them highlighted. See, you you sent them to me in plenty of time and everything. But my, of course, the one which we kind of probably already covered was the one on the animal rights movement. Um, and basically how it's racist. The, the animal rights movement is racist. That's yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's kind of, we kind of touched on it. I mean, it seems like, um, we got all this stuff going on here, but nobody cares what's going on over there. I mean, like I watch, well, the, the first line of this article is, talking about those three young boys were killed by the lion as the brother watched from a tree up above. He was injured, but he had to watch his three brothers getting eaten by a lion. Now I get, I get daily emails from African Conservation Sustainable News. And I'd say, I'm just gonna average once or twice a week, I get emails talking about deaths, either from lions or elephants. 
um, or other animals, but mainly the two are lions and elephants. And um, I mean, that's, that's like every week I get these. So it's just amazing how people can't, I mean, how some people dismiss that, dismiss the fear that they have, the reality of how they have to live with. And the, we should be doing whatever we can to make it easier for them. I, I mean, we want to make, we want those lions to survive, but we got to give them a reason to have those lions survive. But anyway, I, I thought that was an interesting article. Yeah. I get, your point goes right back to before when you said, if it came down to a matter of life and death of my family eating, it wouldn't bother me to illegally heart, kill an animal. Um, and you can bet that for a lot of us, myself included, that if three of my sons or three of like, yeah, it, it, it boggles my mind that, that that doesn't, but the people don't look at that and go, okay, we have to manage lions. We have to manage them somehow. And you can't blame those folks. It was like, uh, there was a video where, there was a bunch of folks, I think it may have been in India, but they were kind of throwing firebombs, homemade firebombs at elephants. And it, it was a horrible video. I mean, I don't want any animal to ever be burned alive ever, no matter what. But they were setting these elephants on fire. And the backlash was at those folks. And if you lived in a village that totally relied on the crops you were and people also have to realize it's not crops like an alfalfa field up there in Idaho or a wheat field in Kansas with a $200,000 combine and tractors. It's them scrabbling together a big garden is what it is. Um, mm -hmm. And if that elephant came through and destroyed it and the government wouldn't help you and there was no program to do it, I don't know how you get mad at those people. That elephant is, is, destroying not their livelihood their survival right like survival. how they're gonna how they're gonna live um and it's also killing people they're, they're they are they kill people um and i don't get how these governments then forming a conservation and management program that includes harvesting those animals putting a small amount of fear back into them of humans and civilization which is healthy for everyone um and at the same time, generating a bunch of income for those folks is a bad thing. Um, and I surely, surely don't see how it's racist. Um, the article made zero sense to me. Um, yeah, the, the, the idiocracy is, is amazing to me. Let's cover I got one that I want to throw at you. This is, okay. this is specifically to uh, you. You were not. Um, you weren't backing your husband completely on the zebra hunt. No. <laughs> and Australia now has a potential plan to, in this, in this, you know, in the, in the article, the word euthanized, but they're going to kill a, approximately 10,000 horses. Um, we just had a meltdown here in the West. I, I don't know if it was in Idaho, but it was definitely in Colorado and Utah about rounding up horses. And we didn't, they didn't kill any of them. It wasn't, uh, 
euthanization thing. They have a plan to kill 10,000 horses. What does, uh, let's do it this way. Here's a fun thing. What does, what does Sue Tidwell pre-Africa think of that? And is there any adjustment in that thought process for Sue Tidwell post-Africa? Is that a fair question? Yeah. I mean, I'm, because of writing this book, I'm so much more educated now. I have read everything that comes across that I can about conservation. And, you know, I try to write, read both sides of things. So I, I look at things more pr pragmatically, I guess, now. And I see the bigger picture. So we have horses here in our pasture. My family, has, my husband's family has a horse ranch and cattle. And there's probably 30, 40 horses out here. So um, ranching is part of their life. And I love horses. But um, as hard as it is to say, we... I've come around to that whole deal is that we can't base it on emotion. If you have too many of those horses, they're ultimately destroying the habitat for all the other animals there, here too in America. And ultimately they'll eat themselves out of house and home and they'll die horrible deaths. And, but we have to pre protect the whole ecosystem. So as, as unpopular as that is, um, I think we have to do what is going to safeguard the habitat overall and i know that's and i would have never said that several years ago but um looking at it now more from a realistic standpoint and looking at the big picture of everything um that's what i say now <laughs> yeah no and it's a i i i wonder sometimes if there's people out there that think that someone's gleeful about this and i, I don't think anyone's happy about this i don't think um, that there's anyone that is excited about this prospect. Um, and then the other thing that you get so much and you're getting it, we're getting it right now um, with wild horses here in the United States is them saying nature will take care of itself. Um, and it's just such a ridiculous argument when there's almost 8 billion people on the earth. Nature, and, and it's our fault, Right. It's, it's human beings' fault that nature can no longer take care of itself. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that the same argument can be made about the wolves and people saying it, it, it'll work itself out. You know, it, it balanced itself out 200 years ago here. Well, there was, there was 30 to 60 million bison for those wolves to eat when we had 25,000 wolves across the Rocky Mountains. It's a different world. It's our fault it's a different world or it it's our doing whether it's fault is subjective but it's kind of like you can't take the hands off the wheel now we've already screwed everything up so yeah 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 we, all we can do now is try to do the best we can to manage it and keep it in balance and um you know the and and like i'm not a biologist this would be more for robbie but from what i've read it takes to so so so-called let nature take its course you're talking 25 30 years for something to take its course do we want to wait that long to you know what's going to happen in the meantime i mean and that like i said that's probably more for robbie but i just agree that it's too late we have to help things out the best we can well and any more nature taking its course and also nature taking its course within invasive species both in australia 
and the United States, we put the things here, right? Mm -hmm. Like not, not Cody and Sue, but our ancestors did somebody way back, you know, there that, and this area wasn't meant to handle horses. And not only that, but yes, unfortunately, we've really trimmed down the apex predators who could control a horse population. Um, there aren't very many of them really in Australia. Um, it's definitely one of those, uh, it's never going to be a happy management story, but it is a conservation story. It's a conservation of habitat and it's a conservation of dozens, if not hundreds of other species whose habitat those horses are actively destroying. Um, but both in the United States and in Australia, you know, the, the, the sage grouse in the areas where there's wild horses has very, very little hope if we don't help the, the sage grouse out based on what the horses are doing to the population. And there's dozens of other examples. Sue, let's do one more story just because I feel like Robbie is going to tell me that I talked way too much about other stuff. Um, Jeff Bezos. Let's do a happy story. That's a happy story, isn't it? Jeff Bezos pledging if two If he does the billion... right thing with it, it will be. Right, right. Either... <laughs> No, that's true. I was going to say either way, $2 billion has got to help, but he could absolutely do the wrong things with it. Um, it's exciting to me. Jeff Bezos um, jumping in very big. The Walton family also threw, I can't remember, it wasn't $2 billion, but it was several hundred million dollars. Um, it's exciting to see that happening. Um, hopefully those folks trust the biologists on the ground. Um, and not, you know, not the internet on what, what should be done with that money. Not, not based on motion. That's what I hope. I'm really excited when I see this money, I think, oh my gosh, you could, you know, you could buy up habitat you could make corridors and for the animals to move more freely. And you could institute programs that help the local people with honey and there's there's a lot of non-hunting ways you can help the local people in africa going back absolutely to Africa, sorry. but um or anywhere really but if you do the right things with it it'd be awesome i'm just so afraid that you know i'm just so afraid that it's gonna some of this money is gonna go to the um to the group who's gonna base things on emotion Right, you know, and, right. Hey, we're going to do all this, but we're going to take away hunting rights. We're going to give all these billions of dollars, but now we don't want you to hunt. And it, and as you know, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't work in rural, rural parts of the world. Yeah, it doesn't work. It, it wouldn't work in the United States. If, if no. you took away hunting in the United States, our wildlife populations would, would be decimated. Um, Sue, is it? It's uh, I love talking to folks who uh, dug in and got an understanding and and uh, looked at the facts. And it's not that you became a hunter. It's not that you developed some bloodlust that they think we have. You just looked at the facts. You talked to the people on the ground in the fancy resort that you talked your husband into staying in in Africa, right? <laughs> yeah, real fancy. <laughs> oh. Yeah, well, I was, yeah, I was pretty scared about being clear out there. I, I had a fear of black mambas, but uh, anyway, I right. survived that. So right, <laughs> that, 
that's uh it's a it's a it's a different world than rural Idaho. It's a different world than yeah. anywhere, really. It, it's a, it's like I it's said, and like beast. I said, rattlesnakes here probably won't kill you. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Well, Sue, thank you very much, folks. It's Sue Tidwell, SueTidwell.com, uh, spelled exactly like it sounds, T-I-D-W-E-L-L.com. Um, the book, I'm telling you, um, I've never really, like like I said, I don't know what I'm talking about. I've never done a book review, but I can't tell you that I put a lot of books down, 10 pages, eight pages in, because um, it's just not going to work for me, and I'm having trouble not clicking on my computer on the digital copy to the next page. It's incredible. Very well written and uh, a cool story. Cool lady. Thanks for coming on, Sue. Thank you for having me. I sure appreciate you having here. And I just hope if, you know, the hunters can share the book maybe with some of their, they all know, everybody, hunter knows people that don't hunt. So that's where I'm hoping to get it into the non-hunting world too. So that's. Right, the, right. The yeah. Thank we'll you so got... much for. It, it's, it ties right in so much with the Blood Origins mission that I'll speak for us as an organization that. Once copies are available, we will help work to get it out there. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you having me on. It's been fun. Super. Thanks, Sue. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.